Hey, good to be here with you. Uh, we are, if you're just joining us, we're finishing up a series through the book of Philippians this morning. Do you want to pull that slide up there for us, Zoe? Philippians chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. Uh, we are finishing up this series we're calling The Pursuit of Joy. Thank you so much. Uh, the Pursuit of Joy. And uh, our contention is that as created beings by God the Father, that no matter who you are, no matter what time you've lived, no matter what religion you are, whatever the case, you were created to pursue joy. That's what you were created for. And we, we've said all along that God is, you were also created to glorify God. And so God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied or joyful in Him. Uh, the problem is that that, that, that that gets twisted. We, we pursue a lot of other things than, rather than the ultimate thing to find joy. And in the end, we find heartache. And so Paul is writing from Rome, a city of immense wealth in its day, a city that you could go there today and still see some of the buildings that Paul would have seen on his, his way into his Roman jail cell. Uh, you would see the Colosseum and you would see some of the other uh, magnificent uh, uh, accomplishments of, of human architects. It was a city of power. It was a city of prestige. It was one thing to be Roman, but it was another thing to actually be Roman. And so uh, that carried with it some uh, authority in your life. It, it was a, a city of excess. Uh, uh, they, they, uh, they, well, historians debate whether or not uh, they really had a thing called the vomitoriums. Have you heard about the vomitoriums? You know this idea? that they had so much excess. They would have these parties where, where there'd be so much wine and meat and bread and cheese and all the, the good things, and they would gorge themselves, but, but they were so addicted to, to pleasure that they would gorge themselves, and then they would go into this little marble room, think a bathroom, but with a big trough, and they would purge themselves. They would throw up so that they could go out and gorge themselves again. This was Rome. They were seeking joy. They were seeking pleasure. Uh, you know, at the top of all that was Caesar, Nero Augustus Germanicus Caesar. And you would think this would be uh, the, the most happy man in the empire, but, but he wasn't. Oh, he had a whole choir dedicated. Their whole job was to sing his praises so that when he walked down the streets of Rome or was carried rather, they would sing glory to Caesar on the highest and on earth peace on whom his favor rests. He would have whatever he wanted in terms of sexual excess, in terms of concubines, in terms of uh, anything that his earthly desire wanted, he could uh, acquire. And so I imagine a conversation on the streets of Rome often went like this, man, wouldn't it be great to be Caesar? Man, just for a day, wouldn't it be great to be all that power, all that, that, that fame, all that prestige, all that wealth, all the excess. Man, I would be happy if I was Caesar just for one day, I imagine that conversation going. But historians tell us that, that Caesar was not a happy man. He was a megalomaniac. He was a, a, a miserable man. No matter how many times they sang his praises, he wanted more and more and more. He wanted to be glorified. 
I mean, he was glorified as a God as it was, but he knew that he was going to die. And so one day he set part of Rome on fire to burn it down to make way for him to erect uh, statues and monuments to his fame and his glory. And the Romans didn't like this, particularly the Praetorian Guard. And so they were about to kill him and he blamed the Christians. That's why the great persecution broke out against Christians. But, but Caesar was not a happy man. No, the happiest man in all of Rome, really the happiest man in all of the world was a Jewish guy in a cold, damp jail cell in Rome. His face was a little bit messed up from the beatings he had taken. That one time where he was stoned and they thought he was dead and they drug him out of the city face down in the dirt, that that still had its marks on him. He, He knew what it was like to face pain and suffering. And yet, he's the happiest man in Rome. How, it doesn't make sense to us. He, 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 uh, we can read about his life, but, but he, he wasn't one that would be uh, quick to talk about his trials and suffering, uh, but, but we know that he would uh, spend sleepless nights shivering because his clothes were thread, threadbare in the wintertime. We know he went many days without food or or drink, and yet he survived that as well. We know that uh, he was shipwrecked twice, and uh, he he, uh, was spent a day and the night in the open sea. We know that he was abandoned by his family members when he became a Christian. We know that he was abandoned by Christians along the way. We know that he was abandoned by everybody, and yet he's the happiest person. How is that possible? Well, we, we read about it in, in, in the book of Acts. He was, he, was a, he was an angry person. He was a zealous person. He, he thought he was doing God's work by stamping out. Well, one day this, this, uh, this way started coming up, and they said that the Messiah had come, that it was Jesus, and, and he stood on the side as a Pharisee, and he said, uh, what are they talking about? And a guy named Stephen began to talk about Jesus, and he began to call the people of Israel to repentance, and and the rage and murderous thoughts began to rise up, not only in this guy named Saul of Tarsus, but uh, it began to rise up in some of the other leaders, and so they began to throw stones at Stephen, and they began to hit Stephen, and and some of them apparently didn't have enough range of motion in their, 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 their throws, so they would take off their jackets, and they didn't just want to put them in the dirt, they took them over to this guy named Saul, and they put him at his feet. And the Bible tells us that he gave hearty approval to this kind of murderous insight. And so uh, that's this guy. And, and not only that, he said, we need to stamp this out because after Stephen died, the church scattered. But as this church scattered, we read in the book of Acts, they took this gospel message beyond the, the, the walls of Jerusalem and into Samaria and Judea and beyond, and it was spreading like a fire. And so this guy, Saul, said, I've got to stamp this out. And he got letters from the authorities and said, hey, can I round up these people that are in Damascus and, and bring them in because they're part of the way and, and let's, let's persecute them. Let's murder them as well because that's what would please God. And, and so he, with full authority, with, while he was still breathing out murderous threats, the Bible tells us, got knocked off his horse by Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And Jesus said, you are now my disciple. I, I love that. 
I mean, so much, so much we, we spend so much time in the American church like, hey, would you just please accept Jesus into your heart? That didn't happen with Saul. It was just like, boom, you're my disciple. And in that moment, he was gripped and by the grace of God and the mercy of God, and he was blinded and he was taken away into the house. And for three days, he didn't eat any food, didn't drink any water. He's blinded. And, and God sends a messenger to a guy named Ananias in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 9. And he says, hey, uh, Saul is there, uh, I want you to go pray for him, and, and uh, he's going to be my messenger. And Ananias, I love the conversation. I love the honesty. And Ananias is like, you know who Saul is, right? I like him blind and hurting right now. Let's just keep him that way. And, and God says to Ananias, no, 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 no. I will show him, Acts chapter 9, I think verse 16 says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul would suffer. He would experience incredible highs and incredible lows, far greater than any of us experience. And he would go on, and one day he would come to this city called Philippi, but uh, of course, the gospel hadn't gotten there yet, and there weren't even, wasn't even a synagogue. And so he went down by the river, and he found a women's Bible study. And he went to the women's Bible study, and he said, let me tell you about the God who lives. Let me tell you about Jesus. And a, a woman there named Lydia, it says, the Scripture tells us in Acts 13, God opened her heart, and she received Jesus. And she was transformed in that moment. And Lydia said, Lydia was this fashionista. She had a house in Thyatira, a house in Philippi a house in Rome. She was a multinational CEO. She had some wealth. And, and so she said to Paul and Silas, who had, had been going through some hardships, had been missing some meals, she said, come and stay with me for a while. And that worked out pretty well. Think mansion, think compound, think pillow top bed. And so he got to go there and, and enjoy that. I imagine Lydia had her own chef. And so he got to enjoy the best that this life had to offer. And so he did that for a while, but it didn't last very long. See, a race riot broke out in Philippi, and they turned their, their anger towards Paul and Silas, and they, they, they grabbed hold of them. It says, the Scripture says they beat him, but they beat them. Then they arrested him, and when they handed him over to the jailer, the jailer beat them again and put them in stocks in the inner part of the prison cell. And what were they doing as night went on? What would you do in that situation? Well, we can read about it in Acts chapter 13. Again, they, they are praising God, singing hymns, and praying for the fellow prisoners in there. Well, God delivers them, sends an earthquake, they're free. Uh, now the prisoners, uh, all the doors open on, in the jail, and the prisoners are, are about to get out, and, and the jailer knows that his life is over. That's it. His whole life was wrapped up in his career. Some of us know what that's like, and, and when his career came to an end, uh, he was about to kill himself, and Paul says, no, 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 don't kill yourself. We're all here, and the guy says in that moment, what must I do to be saved, and he gets saved. <laughs> And he takes, takes Paul and Silas out of prison, and they get to go back to Lydia's house, and, and now it's a high again, and, and he would go through lows, and he would go through highs, and he'd go through lows. Now, keep all of that in mind as we come to the Scripture this morning, because that's the context in which Paul is writing. The happiest guy in Rome was not sitting on a throne. He was chained to another soldier 
in a jail cell in Rome. And he writes these letters from that pers- this letter from that perspective. It's a thank you letter, but it's not a thank you letter like you and I would write. He's got deeper theological motives to it. And listen for those in light of what we just heard about this man, Paul. Verse 10 of chapter 4. And as I read, I'd ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's writing to this church that sent him a gift to provide for his needs. The church at Philippi, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering. A, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let's pray and then we'll unpack this. God, we, we come before you once again uh, needy people needing once again to be reminded of what's ultimately true and ultimately right so that we can once again set our course to joy, joy in you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, do that in us now, that you would, as only you can do, make your word come alive to pierce even uh, down to the joint and marrow, as your word says, down into our very hearts, Lord. Change us by the gospel change us by your word. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips be honoring and pleasing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, on Paul's scale of uh, abounding and need, the vast majority in this room land on the abounding side of the scale, right? So, 71% of the world's population today live on less than $10 a day. So automatically, probably all of us are in the top quarter. But even if you go further than that, we are in the abounding section. And, and as the world would determine, as the world would cast vision for us, we should be, in Parker, Colorado, the most content people on the face of the planet. I mean, after all, we can leave here today and get a sandwich that, that the kings and queens queens of history would envy us with mouth-watering envy. We can just go get that at the corner store. We have have comfort. We have safety. We have security. We have the abounding side of the scale. So we should be the most content people in the world. At least that's what the commercials tell us. Oh, they tell us we just need a little bit more, and if we get that little bit more, then we'll be 
content. But it, it's like a mirage. It always seems to be out there just beyond our reach. And if we'll go a little bit further, we'll arrive. And yet, I don't know that we are marked by contentment in Parker, Colorado. Um, I don't think it's tied to our circumstances. And I've said this before. One of the reasons I know that is because I've been to Disney World, right? I've seen weeping and gnashing of teeth on the happiest place on earth, right? I've seen it in my kids. I've seen it in myself. But I've been to the adult version of Disney World too. I've been on a luxury cruise. And now, I read this article this week by David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was... Uh, probably, well, by my many accounts, Time Magazine named his book Infinite Jest, one of the top 100 American books ever written. Um, he uh, was a prolific writer. Uh, tragically, as he sought satisfaction in life and not finding it, in 2007, I believe, he took his own life. But in 1997, Harper Magazine uh, said, hey, we want you to go on a luxury cruise and we want you to write about it. And he writes this, this article. It's a very long article, but it's a great article. And he's not writing from a Christian perspective, uh, bear in mind. And if you read the article, you'll, you'll get some language and you'll say, oh, that's true. But um, it's an amazing work. It's hilarious. The article's hilarious. It's titled this, Shipping Out on the Nearly Lethal Comforts of, of a Luxury Cruise. And he says he got the magazine, and, and they had hired a professional writer who had written other books, and, and they didn't say it was an advertisement. This writer acted like this is really what he believed about the cruise, and, and it said, uh, we are here to pamper you. We're here to, to meet your every want and desire. This is going to be everything for you. And so he said, all right, that looks pretty good. And uh, uh, he goes there, and after waiting in line to get on the cruise, which was kind of an inconvenience, he eventually got on his ship. And uh, he said, this is a, a, a beautiful ship. Now, some of you have been on cruises, and you want me to tell you the ship, because then you can compare, well, no, it really wasn't that great of a ship, or that is a nice ship, but that's not the point. The point is, he was astounded by the ship. Everything was beautiful and clean and repainted and touched, not a speck of rust, uh, uh, the the, the carpet was immaculate. The, the glass-covered uh, elevators were amazing, and he was just shocked by all the food and the drinking and all the excess, and he was shocked by his cabin steward, who she would come in like 10 times a day and remake his bed and put a new chocolate on the pillow and, and fold it at exactly a 45-degree angle so he could get in bed, and, and he learned that he could do a room service, and even though there was 10 other opportunities on the ship to eat, he loved room service in addition to all that. And so he would get, you can let them have if they want to come in, but he would get lots of uh, room service and he would just be amazed. Like, this is all free? Welcome, come on in. Uh, and uh, they would uh, come around. And uh, is that locked? Sorry about that. Well, welcome to Redemption Park. We lock people out and uh, we appreciate that. Uh, we'll have to figure that out in the future. By the way, next week we're back in the other place, so thank you for your flexibility uh, for us. But So anyway, he was just astounded by this and, and everything, and he's just talking about the excess and everything. And, um, but 
Something happened on about day five or six. After he he had started getting used to it, after he was stopped being embarrassed when he would have a full tray of food and and someone would come and take that for him and take it to his seat, Uh, after he got used to all that, uh, he said they they pulled into the port at Cozumel, and in Cozumel, uh, everyone got off, but he's kind of an introvert, so he just went up to the top deck, deck number 12, and he just lays out, and he's he's looking at the sea and the, the beautiful island, and in comes a another cruise ship, but it's a bigger cruise ship. It's a nicer cruise ship, and it pulls up right next to him so that the the gangway almost hits their gangway, and he's looking up from, from deck 12, and all of a sudden, discontent is entering into his heart, and he's thinking of all the things that he's actually not quite sure of on his ship anymore. He's not quite sure that the cabin steward actually folded at a perfect angle every time, and, and he says when he orders the sandwich at a room service, they put the pickle next to the crust, and it gets a little soggy, and he doesn't like that, and the, the water at his, uh, from his sink is, is not as cold as he likes. And then he writes this. I'll just read it. He says, I'm standing here on deck 12 looking at the dream word. That's the name of the other ship, which I bet has cold water that turn your knuckles blue. And part of me realizes that I haven't washed a dish or tapped my foot in line behind somebody with multiple coupons at the supermarket checkout in a week. And yet, instead of feeling refreshed and renewed, I'm anticipating how totally stressful and demanding and unpleasurable a return to regular landlocked adult life is going to be now that even just this premature removal of a towel by a crewman seems like an assault on my basic rights and the sluggishness of the aft elevator is an outrage. And as I'm getting ready to go down to lunch, I'm mentally drafting a really mordant footnote on my single biggest peeve about this ship. They don't even have Mr. Pibb. They foist Dr. Pepper on you with a maddeningly unapologetic shrug when any fool knows that Dr. Pepper is no substitute for Mr. Pibb, and it's an absolute travesty, or at best, extremely dissatisfying indeed. It's this picture, he says, he realizes that 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 magazine was a lie. It promised to, to meet your every want And he said, my want grows faster than that. All of our wants grow faster than that. And so we would do well today because we we all want contentment. We just think that contentment is tied to our circumstances. Contentment is tied to to getting a a better job or a new house or a new car or or a spouse or a different spouse or uh, just the list goes on and on. We will be content if our kids are successful. We'll be content if you put whatever your blank is. What keeps you up at night that is trying to convince you if you just had that, you'd be content. Now, Paul writing from a Roman jail cell, says, I've learned the secret. And he has some authority to speak on that. We've already talked about. So we would do well to pay attention to what he meant here. Well, I think the roots of discontent are two things, unbelief and idolatry. Unbelief and idolatry. So the first thing is unbelief. We don't believe Jesus is who He says He is and that He will do all that He promises He will do because Jesus promises to to make much of Himself and give you everlasting joy. And so whatever it takes in your life, Jesus is working out for for your good and for His glory. Now, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that when he takes away, it's actually for your good? Do you believe that when he gives, it's for your good? Uh, I don't know that we believe that. We believe that Jesus is an okay guy, and we, we hope that he saves us for eternity. But right here, right now, I'm not sure, if, if I'm honest, if I can trust Jesus. That's, that, that's what goes around in my heart sometimes. It's an unbelief. It's saying, uh, I, I don't think you are who you say you are, and you'll do all that you promise you will do. C.S. Lewis put it this way, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And so we're locked in a very temporal mindset. You know our life, the Bible describes our life like this, a a puff of smoke that as soon as you see it and it's gone, that's basically how long your life lasts. James describes it as like dew on the grass. So when the sun comes up by 9 a.m., it is gone. That's your life. But we don't live like that. We think that this is everything. We, think, we, don't, we don't think that Jesus is actually promising an eternity of joy and bliss in His presence forever, and now He's shaping Himself in us. We don't think like that. So there's unbelief, and then there's idolatry. Idolatry is just simply thinking that something other than God is ultimate, that that, that thing, that car, that vacation, that will finally satisfy my soul. And many of those things on our list are very good things, and, not, and they have their proper place, but in and of themselves, they were never meant to reign on the throne of our lives. Only God can do that. And so, this yesterday, I, I read that uh, uh, one ticket was issued as a winner for the $353 million lottery. And if I could say anything to that person right now, I would say this, it's not enough money. It's not enough money to bring you contentment. You're going to need a whole lot more than $353 million. Maybe you can relate to this poem I read. The poem is called Present Tense. It says this, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth, the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted. The presence of mind without limitation. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. See, Paul is going to give us the secret. He's going to lay out a path for us in this. And and the number one thing that he's going to tell us that we don't believe, but we need to wrap our hearts around this, is this, that contentment is disconnected or has nothing to do with our circumstances. Now, if we could believe this first point, that would change our lives. It has nothing to do with our circumstances because we believe it has everything to do with our circumstances. If our circumstances would just be changed, then I would be happy. Paul says, no. He says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Last week, he commanded the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, and he's saying, I do it too. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And he says that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. But he wants to be very clear from the very beginning. 
In verse 11 and verse 17, he starts the verse with not that. Not that. He, he doesn't want them to think, this is just a thank you letter, and I'm just happy that you provided for my needs. He's like, no, there's something deeper going on here. There's some evidence of grace. There's some evidence that you as a Philippian church are getting it, that the gospel is transforming your life. It's touching your bank accounts. It's touching your wallet because as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so they see he sees the Philippian church starting to treasure Jesus, and he says, man, I am psyched for you as your pastor. And he says this, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. It's not about me, he says. And then he goes on, and he's very clear. He, he draws this parallel in several different ways. Listen to it. For I have learned whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, just covering all his bases, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he wants to be very clear. It's like, just so you know, it has nothing to do. I've been in bo both extremes, and my contentment is not based on whether I'm sleeping on the pillow top at Lydia's house or here in the Roman jail cell. That has nothing to do with my contentment. We would think that, that would have a lot to do with my contentment, but Paul wants to free us from that. He wants to let us go. And so the first thing is we realize that contentment has nothing to do. So what do you need to be content? Well, there's a second point in this, that contentment is learned. Twice in verse 11 and then in verse 12, he says, I have learned that, that, that implies process. Jesus didn't just zap contentment into Paul's heart. We're not told how long it, it took him to get to this point. He's probably 30-something years a, a believer now in Christ, but, but he says he learned. It took time. It took process. It took reminding himself of the truth. Jeff Gordon, the NASCAR racer, was interviewed recently, and, and he said, you know, in racing, you have to concentrate really hard or you'll hit something really hard. And I love the clarity of that. You have to concentrate really hard or you'll hit something really hard. And that's kind of the Christian life. You have to focus really hard. You said focus, sorry. You have to focus really hard or you'll hit something hard. That's true of us. And so Paul says you're, you have to learn how to focus. You have to learn how to put your attention in the right place. You'll have to learn through the school of prosperity and the school of poverty. The school of prosperity teaches we will encounter greed in that. And greed is a fuel that will fuel more greed. The, the author of Ecclesiastes put it this way. Solomon, who understood something about getting a lot, said this. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. Paul, writing to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus, giving him some instruction, he, he said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 17, he said, Instruct those who are rich in the present age, that's most of us, myself included, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve in the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. Re that is real. I love that, of life that is real. Did I not have that verse? 
Okay, that's my next verse. So the school of prosperity will face greed, but the school of poverty, you also face greed because greed's a heart issue. It's not a socioeconomic issue. And so Paul will say to Timothy earlier in chapter 6, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Can any of us say that in this room today? Like not that we'll have a house, not that we'll have a car, just if we have food or clothing. But Jesus said, do you still want to follow me? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I don't have any place to lay my head. Are you still going to follow me? He just said, follow me. Paul says, if we have food, if we have clothes, we'll be content. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not there. I have not learned the secret. I, I want to be there, though, because this life is a breath that comes for one moment and is gone the next. In the book of Proverbs... The author writes this, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of God. So the heart cry of the author of Proverbs is, Lord, I just I don't want to be tempted by the extremes. Lord, just give me neither poverty nor wealth. Just so, uh, riches. So, First thing is that contentment is disconnected from our circumstances. Second, contentment is learned. And third, contentment flows from union with Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, this verse may be the most misquoted verse in the whole Bible. Uh, this is not saying... Man, I, I mean, no offense. I love Tim Tebow, don't get me wrong. But when he has Philippians 4.13 on his eyelid, it, it really has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do whether you're going to throw a touchdown pass or crush a home run. I'm not questioning his heart. I'm questioning his exegesis or his in interpretation. This is not saying, man, if you're to your little kid, hey, just remember, Alex, Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. What if Alex goes up and strikes out? Has Jesus let him down in that moment? No. I mean, when we claim this verse, we have to claim it in the context. Paul is saying, I have learned the secret. In spite of my circumstances, Christ is enough. So whether you're in the major leagues or you can't, you're not strong enough to be the bat boy, Christ will be enough in those moments. I can do all. And the word one, one commentary said that should be inserted here is these. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ will be enough when you find Christ as your sufficiency and as your contentment. And then Paul goes on to kind of give us a path for that in the next paragraph. I don't have any slides for this, so you can just go to the blank one on that. But in verse 14, he kind of unpacks, yet it was kind of you to share in my... Oh, I do have one more slide. I'm sorry, but don't worry about that. Uh, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, he kind of recites their history together. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So some commentators say this is Paul's thank you letters, but others say it's Paul's thank you letter kind of. Not necessarily a thank you letter. He's got a bigger agenda because look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. This isn't about me. 
I was happy the day that Epaphroditus showed up in my jail cell, but what made me most happy was what it said about your faith. What it said that Jesus was alive to you. Jesus was real. That, that, that in your sacrificial giving, the gospel was taking root in your life. Not that I seek the gift. See, see at Redemption Parker, we, we don't pass an offering, and, and we actually lose something in that. We lose the opportunity to worship together in that. We do have an offering box. Uh, but we never want to make finances a point of, uh, of undue concern or interest. We want you to give generously because the gospel has changed you. In the Old Testament, they would give a baseline of 10%, and then they would give other offerings to up to 20 to 23% of their income. And they were under the law. If you wanted to be righteous before God, if you wanted to be in God's good standing, you would follow that kind of religiously. But in the New Testament, it's not like that. The New Testament is the people of God have open hands. Everything is God's and everything is from God. And so I just say this. The pe- which people, the, the, the old covenant people or the new covenant people, which people, when you understand the truth, should be the most generous? Statistics tell us that American Christians give about 2% of their income. And all that means to me is they haven't been captured by the gospel. We have lots of things we want to do in this city, and it's going to take resources, and we want to be good stewards of that. But ultimately, if you're not captured by the gospel, we'll have financial problems. If you're captured by the gospel, we'll never have a need because there's more than enough in this room. And so we want the gospel to capture our hearts. And that's what Paul is saying. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You're investing in eternity, he says to the Philippians. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then he uses an Old Testament illustration. He says, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, this is, this is an act of worship. People transformed by the gospel, your gift to me is an act of worship. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. His riches. God is not poor. There is never a need. He's never in need. He's got all riches. And he says, my God will provide every need of yours. And again, this verse, we can't rip out of context. This isn't just to apply for everything. Say, I'm just going to claim this verse. No, you have to claim it in the context of what he's saying to the Philippians. He's saying to the Philippians, you sacrificially gave to the Corinthians. He says, the Philippians gave out of their poverty. And he says, because you are worshiping in that way, God will provide your needs. Not necessarily your wants or all your desires, but He will provide your needs. And if we have our needs met, isn't that enough? I think of this young couple who was doing youth ministry, and they, they were just struggling to get by. And at, at the um, end of the week, they had 13 cents left in their bank account. And God had provided uh, on that walk of faith for many months in different 
miraculous ways even. And so now they got to the, to the end of the week, and there was still a few days before payday. They had some canned goods in their, their closet, so they knew they could eat, but what they didn't have was toilet paper. They were out of toilet paper, and they had 13 cents to their name. And this couple said, well, uh, Philippians 4, uh, 7 or 8 says that we should let our requests be known to God. And, and it says there in Philippians 4, 19, that God will provide all of our needs. So if we need toilet paper, apparently, uh, He'll provide it. So let's just pray. And they began to pray. And at the end of their prayer, this is no joke, this is a true story, the doorbell rang. Well, they're youth workers, right? So their youth group got the idea, like many youth groups, to teepee their house. <laughs> but they weren't very good at it. They didn't understand the concept. They just used one roll. And then they set the, the rest of the whole package on their doorstep, rang the doorbell, ding-dong ditched them. But don't you want to live that kind of life? Where you're like, God, I don't know where, where you're going to provide, but man, I want to be in a position where I get to tell that kind of story. So what do you need? Do you, do you want to be content? Of course you do. Of course you do question is, are you going to believe Jesus is who He says He is? And He'll do all that He promises He will do. Now imagine what we could do in this city if we were a, we, we were a light on the hill of content people. All right, here's a question. If you and I were in that jail cell in Philippi, would the jailer have become a Christian that night? based on our kind of, you know, maybe we'd go in there just kind of grumbling, demanding our rights. This isn't right. This isn't good. Or like, I need some Band-Aids. I need something. Like, like, would he have been turned to Christ? Now, here's the thing. You don't have to learn this secret. You can still be a Christian. You'll still go to heaven. You'll just be a miserable person. <laughs> but you get to go to heaven. But, but the other thing is that your life may not have the impact that it could have. People that are content, people want to be around. People that are joyful, people want to be around. And so when that jailer comes in and has heard you praying and singing songs and being content in Jesus, will that be a witness to this city? That's my hope. That's my prayer. Let me pray for us and then we'll come to this communion table once again.